Hello, and welcome to the Verse Verse Podcast. My name is Justin Thomas, and I'm really excited for our journey from Genesis to Revelation a couple of chapters a week. My goal is that you would grow in your ability to understand the story that the Bible tells as a whole, as well as your ability to read the Bible for yourself. I would love to connect with you on social media. You can find us at verse slash verse, all spelled out, on Instagram or Facebook. Thanks again for tuning in. All of the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, have a segment of the book that focuses on judgment for the nations that are around and surrounding Israel. That's where we are in the book of Ezekiel. And so far, that judgment began with six different nations last week. And we saw that the judgment came from two different places. First, there was a collection of nations, all who had rejoiced in, all who had boasted in, some who had even participated in the destruction of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. And then we also saw the city of Tyre that stands in, or the the nation state of the Phoenicians that stands in, not so much because of their involvement, but because of their pride and the temptation they represented to Israel and Judah in particular of a way of life, of wealth and power, of empire and trade and these types of things. When we get to chapter 29, Ezekiel turns his eyes on the final nation of this book of nations, if you will. The seventh nation he addresses is the nation of Egypt. In fact, the structural, the shape of this passage really dials in. So whereas we've talked about six nations so far, the seventh nation here, Egypt, has seven separate oracles devoted to it. So it very much functions as a culmination and a climax, but again, the reason for God's judgment uh, is different. It's not because like the earlier nations we saw, Egypt rejoiced in the destruction of Jerusalem, nor was it like the Phoenicians who had presented this deceptive wealth way of life. Actually, Egypt is judged for trying to help Judah, which is a strange thing to be judged for, but the temptation that Egypt presented was always the temptation of power the temptation of assistance. And what's been happening in Ezekiel's day that is very significant for our chapters is the first time Nebuchadnezzar comes knocking at Jerusalem, surrounds the city of Jerusalem in a siege, all of a sudden that siege lets up and leaves. And the reason is because Pharaoh, king of Egypt, starts to attack Babylon back at home Uh, with the hope of delivering Judah. And so the Babylonians pull out, they go after the Egyptians, they rout the Egyptians, and then they add the Egyptians to their list. So later, Egypt is going to get what's coming to it. But Judah, going all the way back to King Hezekiah, uh, was regularly tempted to treat Egypt like an ally. But if you go all the way back to the beginning... Almost as soon as the Israelites are in the wilderness and have left Egypt behind, they have this tendency to look backward, 
to remember what was clearly and significantly slavery fondly as a time where their bellies were full and things were easy. Even in the Old Testament laws that are given during the wilderness, there's a warning to the kings of Israel that would come not to go back to Egypt, not to find their allies, not to uh, you know, breed horses with the Egyptians, not to take them into their power. In fact, this temptation really does come to a head in the days of Ezekiel, when a small constituency of powers decide to put up resistance against Babylon. Remember, the final king of Judah, the final king sitting on the throne in Jerusalem, was placed there by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. He was his vassal. And so he's quietly whispering to the nations around him, one of the primary ears in that story is Egypt, about rebellion. And so it's because of this partnership and Egypt's place that they think that they can interfere in God's plans, come to the rescue when God won't. It is in that that leads to this judgment. And as we will see, and as we've seen throughout Ezekiel, each of these oracles takes a little bit different of an angle. It shifts the perspective a little bit. It puts it in different imagery or metaphor, or it gives us different language for it. Uh, you will also notice as we move through, quite a few of these oracles are dated. I'm not going to slow down to help you understand the exact time, but just know that all of these dates are basically within the last five years of Jerusalem's existence, all the way up to and into that 18-month siege that leads to the destruction of Jerusalem. Now, one last thing before we get started. Remember that Ezekiel never took a trip to Egypt. Unlike Jeremiah, who lives out his final days in Egypt, Ezekiel stays in Babylon his whole life. Although these messages are for Egypt and about Egypt, Ezekiel's audience is the Judeans. It's the Jews. And so he's writing to show what's coming for Egypt to help to peel away their allegiance with the hope that they would turn and trust in the only true deliverer they have. And so um, the fate of Egypt is laid out here, not just because Egypt deserves it, although we will see that, but also because Judah has had a propensity to make Egypt their false hope, and it will, and it does, fail them. Chapter 29, verse 1. In the tenth year, in the tenth month of the twelfth day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, set your face against Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and prophesy against him and against all Egypt. Speak and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the great dragon that lies in the midst of the stream that says, My Nile is my own, I made it for myself. And so here he turns to Pharaoh and he refers to him as the great dragon. Now a good deal of the ancient Near East had mythological stories of the creators of the world fighting against uh, Leviathan or Rahab, these dragons of chaos, okay? And so here Ezekiel just borrows this imagery and he goes, I know how you think of yourself, Pharaoh. You're the Leviathan, you're the big dragon. Now, you plop one of these in the River Nile, and it also gives us a second picture that's just laying underneath, a crocodile, okay? 
Uh, and that will become significant later. But notice here how Pharaoh sees himself. He looks at the Nile and he says, the Nile is mine. In fact, he says, I made it for myself, which of course is significant hubris, right? The Nile is the reason Egypt is in Egypt, but Egypt didn't come and create the Nile. It's the other way around. It, the Nile was essential to life in Egypt because it was mostly just a giant red desert except for this fertile stripe where this river existed. And because the Nile had regular rhythms of flooding and then the banks receding to normal, it was great for natural irrigation and it was the secret of the stability of Egypt. But Pharaoh looks out at this and he takes ownership of this river that he did not make. And then he, he thinks to himself as if he made it for himself. And I think you can wrap your head around the mistake uh, that Pharaoh is making here. There is not an ounce of gratitude here. Of course, another way to read how Egypt has existed is by the favor of God who made the world. The God who made the Nile. In fact, he'll say later, Egypt, I'm the one who raised you up. Significantly, Ezekiel as well as Isaiah and Jeremiah, maintain that God isn't just actively involved in the plans of one nation, the nation of Israel, but in the plans of all nations. And so here with Egypt, he says, I know how you think of yourself. I know how exalted you are in your own mind. I know you're the big dragon in the neighborhood. But notice what he says in verse 4, I will put hooks in your jaws and make the fish of your streams stick to your scales, and I'll draw you up out of the midst of your streams. We know from a handful of documents that the, the way that you handle a crocodile that you need to get uh, rid of is just like this. You have a long stick with a hook on the end, and you use that to get into the mouth of the crocodile and, and drag it around into submission. Um, but there's also some imagery here that is well beyond natural life. Notice it says, I'll make the fish of your streams stick to your scales. Obviously, the idea here is either talking about the armies of Pharaoh and them being kind of bundled together in the fate of their king, or maybe the Egyptians as a whole, the whole nation. In fact, we noticed right there, he said that this prophecy regarded not just Pharaoh, but all of Egypt. And so it's as if, if you can paint the picture, it's as if they're going to hook this crocodile and then swab the Nile until he's covered in fish and then lift him out of the river. And then it says in verse five, I will cast you into the wilderness, you and all the fish of your streams. Now, as you can imagine, that's not a healthy place for a crocodile to be, and that's the point. He's going to take him out of his safe Nile River. He's going to take him out of his source of life. He's going to remove him from the things he needs for abundance and health and set him out in the wilderness. You and all the fish of your streams, you shall fall on the open field and not be brought together or gathered to the beast of the earth and the birds of the heaven I give you as food." And so he's just going to lay them in the wilderness as carcasses uh, for carrion birds. Verse 6, then all the inhabitants of Egypt shall know that I am the Lord. Now that's Ezekiel's number one phrase throughout this book. 
He says this so that Judah might know that God is Lord. He says this so that Tyre might know that God is Lord, so that the uh, Philistines might know. And we see it repeated here with Egypt, but it's especially appropriate here. Because if you go back and you read the opening chapters of the book of Exodus, what we call the Exodus, right, with Israel's removal uh, out of the powers that be in Egypt and delivered um, from their hand, God tells Moses right up front, the reason I'm going to do this is so that Pharaoh would know that I am God. And interestingly enough, when Moses first comes to Pharaoh and he says, let my people go, for the Lord has called us into the wilderness to offer him sacrifices. And what is Pharaoh's question? Who is God that I would know him? And so the Exodus uh, plagues kind of... uh, operate as God's business card, saying, all right, you want to know that I am God, you want to know that your gods, your lowercase g gods, your pantheon of Egypt, the river Nile that you worship, Ra, and these types of gods, you want to know how I compare to them? Let's just have a contest. Let's just have a battle. And significantly, almost every one of the ten plagues touches things that the Egyptians personally worshipped, as God shows that he's sovereign over all of those realms. And so here, it's almost a return to style for God to say, Pharaoh, we're going to have a contest. Pharaoh, we're going to have a battle, you and I. And at the end of it, you're going to remember, oh, that's right. You are God. I am not. But then we see the real reasoning here. It's not just his pride. It's not just his hubris. But it continues in verse 6, because you have been a staff of reed to the house of Israel. Now, A reed is an appropriate picture here for Egypt. The Nile River is lined with them, okay? And you can probably imagine a reed and think of it like a walking staff, and it's fine in picture, but it doesn't work in practice, okay? Reeds are tremendously soft. They're terribly weak. They don't make good things to lean on, okay? And so the idea here of a staff of reed uh, is something that is supposed to be for one thing and just by nature cannot do it. But interestingly, when it says here, you've been a staff of reed to the house of Israel, we would almost think that that would speak of Egypt's deception, right? You promised support for Egypt but didn't provide it. But that's not what's going on here. Egypt was committed and true in their commitment to Israel. The problem is their commitment went against God's will. It went against God's will for Judah that he constantly told to trust in him instead of Egypt. It went against God's will who had put Nebuchadnezzar in charge and now Egypt is going in an uprising, a rebellion against him. And so notice in verse 7, when they grasped you with the hand, you broke and tore all their shoulders and when they leaned on you, you broke and made all of their loins shake. You let them down. You couldn't do what you said you could do. Therefore, verse 8, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will bring a sword upon you, and I have cut cut off from you both man and beast, and the land of Egypt shall be a desolation and a waste. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Because you said, The Nile is mine, and I made it. Therefore, behold, I am against you, and against your streams. And I will make the land of Egypt an utter waste and a desolation from Migdal to Syene as far as the border of Cush, which would be Ethiopia, okay, all the way to the south. No foot of man shall pass through it, and no foot of beast shall pass through it, 
It shall be uninhabited for 40 years. Now, sometimes we encounter prophecies like that and it means a literal 40 years or a literal 70 years or a literal 463 years, depending on where we're looking. I would suggest to you here, this 40 years is, is not to be taken literally, but it is speaking primarily of a generation. Okay? Egypt is just going to be put out of place for a lifetime, if you will, one human span. But it's especially appropriate here because remember, it's during the uh, exodus that Israel, because of their unwillingness to enter the land, also undergoes a generational judgment as they wander around in the wilderness for 40 years. And what's the purpose and point of that wandering? So that the whole generation of unbelief will die off. Because of the context here, I would suggest to you that that's the same idea that Ezekiel is getting it, is basically God is just going to kill off this unfaithful generation. And that's not really that surprising. It lines up with what we've seen so far. Um, but notice as we continue here, verse 12, and I will make the land of Egypt a desolation in the midst of desolated countries and their cities shall be desolation for 40 years among the cities that are laid waste. I'll scatter the Egyptians among the nations and disperse them throughout the countries. For thus says the Lord God, at the end of 40 years, I will gather the Egyptians from the peoples among whom they were scattered and I will restore the fortunes of Egypt and bring them back to the land of Pathros, the land of their origin, and they shall be a lowly kingdom. So unlike many of the other nations that we've seen where God says, I'm going to bring judgment and they will never exist again, with Egypt, they're going to go under this generational judgment and then, like Israel, they'll be resettled in their native land. They'll come back to Egypt. God promises to do that to them, to have mercy on them, but notice it finishes in verse 14 saying they shall be a lowly kingdom. Verse 15, it shall be the most lowly of the kingdoms and never again exalt itself above, above the nations. Up to this point in history, Egypt has been a world power. Going back to the days when the Jews were present as their slaves, when Egypt was really the only empire going. Okay? But at this point, Babylon breaks their back to such a degree that they never try and rise up and become an international presence again. God says, I'm going to make you a nation again but you're going to keep your place. You'll be one of the lowly nations. You're just going to be Egypt and nothing more. Verse 16, And it shall never again be the reliance of the house of Israel, recalling their iniquity when they turn to them for aid. Then they will know that I am the Lord. So he says, I'm going to restore you, but never again is Israel going to be tempted to trust in Egypt. Little Egypt. Lowly Egypt. Right? And so he says, I'm going to put you in a place where you can no longer tempt my people into making the mistake. And I want to remind you again how much God emphasizes that this Babylonian captivity that begins with the destruction of Jerusalem and lasts for 70 years, how much of that is about weaning Israel off their old bad habits, like idolatry, or here, trusting in Egypt. God is going through a recalibration with Judah, preparing them for a new future. And Ezekiel will have plenty to say about that as the book continues. 
Here we get another oracle in verse 17. In the 27th year, in the first month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, made his army labor hard against Tyre. Now remember, we learned about that last week. God prophesies that Tyre is going to be wiped out by the king of Babylon, no longer be this international empire of trade with all of their ships everywhere. And he says, and eventually, I'm going to make the city of Tyre like a bare rock and it will only be good for drying a fisherman's nets. That's where things are headed. Now we pick up in the story um, and at this point, Nebuchadnezzar has been fighting against Tyre for 13 years. 13 years is what it takes to put Tyre in its place. Now, the historical records outside of the Bible get a little bit empty right around here. We know that it was a 13-year fight, and then there's not much else except that we find the ruler of the city of Tyre operating as one of Babylon's vassals. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar pushes Tyre till they finally wave the white flag and go, fine, we belong to you now, okay? But because of that arrangement, it means that the Babylonian army wages a 13-year war and doesn't have a lot of spoil to show for it. In fact, notice what it says here. It says uh, halfway through 18, every head was made bald and every shoulder was rubbed bare. Okay, marching in heavy armor, it's not great. It's not a really enjoyable thing. When you wear one of those big, heavy, hardened leather and metal helmets, it rubs your skull raw. Okay? And when you carry that armor on your shoulders, just like when you carry, you know, for me, it's those big IKEA bags full of Costco groceries. When you carry them long enough and you start to actually get the rashes on your shoulders, imagine what it's like to be a soldier in a 13-year war living on the front lines and constantly being in your gear. That's the image here, and it's, it's just here to show how tremendously costly and difficult this 13-year fight was. And so every head was made bald, every shoulder was rubbed bare, yet neither he nor his army got anything from Tyre to pay for the labor that he had performed against her. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will give the land of Egypt to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he shall carry off its wealth and despoil it and plunder it, and it shall be the wages for his army. Remember, God lays out in the earlier chapters that his plan for Tyre, basically he's hired Nebuchadnezzar and his armies to bring them to justice, to bring about judgment and consequence on them. And as we see here, God basically says, it's not going to be a well-paying gig, but I've got a plan to take care of it. And what is that plan? He says that Nebuchadnezzar is also going to go after Egypt, and Egypt he will despoil. Egypt he will rob blind. Egypt he will level their economy and benefit uh, incrementally from that. Verse 20, I have given him the land of Egypt as his payment for which he labored because they worked for me, declares the Lord God. Now, I don't think the idea is necessarily or directly here that God owes Nebuchadnezzar anything. Again, the focus here is to get Egypt thinking about what's coming, okay? And you can imagine the change in mind that would go from, I am Pharaoh who owns the Nile, like we just saw in the passage, to, hey, by the way, I'm sending Nebuchadnezzar your way. You're going to pay for the entire 13-year war against Tyre. It is a threat. 
and it's supposed to be. And it's primarily aimed at Egypt. And then notice verse 21, on that day I will cause a horn to spring from the house of Israel, and I will open your lips among them, then they will know that I am the Lord. That last verse there is tremendously cryptic. We've been talking about Tyre and Babylon and Egypt, and suddenly we're thrown this curveball. Just about that time, he says, I'm going to cause a horn to spring up for the house of Israel. Now, we do know consistently and regularly in Scripture, a horn speaks of power. It speaks of strength, like a bull has a horn, right? Um, grab him by the horns is, is an idea of strength and power, right? Um, and then it also says that he will open up either Israel's lips among the nations or more likely Ezekiel's lips among the people and they will know that I am the Lord. Here's what I would suggest is going on, okay? Round one, God lays out the destruction of the one unbreakable people, the Phoenicians, who had encampments everywhere, whose wealth was constantly moving, right? Uh, who were too big to fail, like we talked about last week. And yet God says, I'm going to take them out, and then 13 years later this happens, and you can imagine people crossing their arms and going, hey, Ezekiel, yeah, you may say that Tyre's been taken down, but it's still standing. Hey, Ezekiel, right, they can't see how clearly significantly right he's been, and they just continue to excuse by what hasn't happened yet. And he goes, all right, well, let's talk about phase two. Phase two, Pharaoh's going to, or excuse me, Nebuchadnezzar's going to turn his attention to Egypt, and you in your generation right now, Judea, are going to watch your big bully friend, the one who you think is going to deliver you, be crushed. And he says, in that day, Ezekiel, your mouth is going to be open before the people. In other words, maybe now they will listen. Maybe now you'll have a voice before the people. Maybe now they'll recognize you as God's chosen prophet. And therefore, the final line there, then they, Judea, the Israelites, will know that I am the Lord. Chapter 30. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy. And say, thus says the Lord God, wail, alas, for the day. Now probably those opening words, wail and alas, has put you in tune with the type of oracle we have here. We've encountered them over and over again in Ezekiel. This is a lament, right? It's as if there is a public calling for grieving because of a death. But here the death is not of a family member or a famous politician, but the nation of Egypt. Wail, alas, for the day, the day is near, the day of the Lord is near. It will be a day of clouds, a time of doom for the nations. A sword shall come upon Egypt, and anguish shall be in Cush. When the slain fall in Egypt and her wealth is carried away, her foundations are torn down. Now, Egypt had a constituency of powers. They had a group of territories that they had made their own vassals. Like I mentioned, Cush speaks of uh, Ethiopia. Here in verse 5, it mentions Put and Lud and all of Arabia and Libya. Okay? And so there's this large part of the, um, the African shoehorn, right, where Egypt is, that is all under his power. And here he says, you might as well start the funeral now because they're all going down. For judgment is going to happen to all of them. Verse 6, thus says the Lord, those who support Egypt shall fall. 
and her proud might shall come down from Migdal to Syene. They shall fall within her by the sword, declares the Lord, and they shall be desolated in the midst of desolated countries, and their cities shall be in the midst of cities that are laid waste. Hear the repetition there? Again, we're talking about a thorough leveling of the armies that be of the cities and the fortresses that exist in Egypt. Verse 8, then they will know that I am the Lord when I've set fire to Egypt and all her helpers are broken. On that day, verse 9, messengers shall go out from me in ships to terrify the unsuspecting people of Cush. And anguish shall come upon them on the day of Egypt's doom, for behold, it comes. Thus says the Lord God, I will put an end to the wealth of Egypt. By the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, he and his people with him, the most ruthless of nations, shall be brought in to destroy the land, and they shall draw their swords against Egypt and fill the land with the slain. And I will dry up the Nile, and I'll sell the land into the hand of evildoers, and I'll bring desolation upon the land and everything in it by the hand of foreigners. I am the Lord. I have spoken. Verse 13, thus says the Lord God, I will destroy the idols. I will put an end to the images in Memphis. There shall no longer be a prince from the land of Egypt, so I will put fear in the land of Egypt. I will make Pathros a desolation. I'll set fire to Zone. And they will, uh, and will execute judgments on Thebes. All of these, of course, are major metropolitan cities in Egypt. Okay, continuing here, verse 16, I'll set fire to Egypt. Pelesium shall be in great agony. Thebes shall be breached, and Memphis shall face enemies by day. The young men of On and of Pi, Beseth, shall fall by the sword, and the women shall go into captivity. At Tehaphnes they shall be dark. When I break the yoke of the bars of Egypt and her proud might shall come an end in her and she shall be covered by a cloud and her daughters shall go into captivity. Thus I will execute judgments on Egypt and they will know that I am the Lord. Okay, so more of the same, but again, notice this lament. The crying is preemptive. It's almost premature. He says, you might as well start the funeral procession now, and instead of just marching to the graveyard, just march all the way to Babylon, because it's this assured, the fall of Egypt is coming. And now we get to another oracle here in verse 20. In the eleventh year, in the first month, on the seventh day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me. Now, notice we've spanned years and years for these oracles, and again, that's helpful to remember. Especially when we read the prophets, we need to think chronologically or contextually about two different things. One, the living, breathing ministry of Ezekiel, right? And what we see here is at different times, he comes forward with new messages, which are really actually old messages, the same thing he said last year, but a fresh presentation of it. Because the temptation for Judea to trust in Egypt is, is growing, if anything, but still very present, And then the second context, the second layer we have to think about is how the book itself is put together as it's compiled probably later in Ezekiel's life. And so all of these oracles now are organized together and put together because they're topically the same, right? Ezekiel functions not merely as, you know, like an encyclopedia of the ministry of Ezekiel where you can go, okay, Egypt, Egypt, all right, chapter 29. It's a little bit more organized than that. There's still a timeline and a chronology, and we're just a few chapters away from the big explosion 
of the destruction of Jerusalem that all Ezekiel's been talking about is leading towards that, and then the book will pivot, okay? So there's some bigger literary structure, but there's also grouping. And so I know that us going over this again back to back can be a little much, okay? But when it was initially given, these were over the span of years reiterating again and making fresh to new audiences and these types of things. Um, But I do want to point out as we continue through here, the change in posture. So first it was the destruction of the dragon, right? Like a crocodile dragged out of the Nile and just plopped. Then it was a lament, a funeral dirge. And then notice this one here, the word of the Lord came to me, verse 21, son of man, I have broken the arm of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Just like a horn is a picture of power, of course the arm is a picture of strength here. And why is it that Egypt can't be trusted to be strong for Judah? God just says, well, I broke his arm, right? If you were going to go into a fight and your second was a big burly guy, that might be great, unless beforehand somebody breaks into his house and breaks his arm. Now he's of no help to you, right? Of no use to you. And so that's what God says he's done here. He's taken his strength. On top of that, he says, I broke it and it's not been bound up to heal it by binding it with a bandage so that it may become strong to wield the sword. It wasn't set right. It's not going to heal right. Verse 22, therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I'm against Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and I will break his arms, plural, both the strong arm and the one that I was broken, and I will make the sword fall from his hand. Okay. And so we've got kind of a, you know, Monty Python, Black Knight scenario here. One arm goes down, the other arm, the only one that's left goes down with it, right? Um, But the second thing I want you to notice here is it talks about these arms being broken in order, and it may be here that Ezekiel's actually being really specific. And he's not just talking generically about the strength of Egypt being broken, but literally the... uh, Uh, the division of Egyptian armed forces. And the reason I suggest this is because we know that the Egyptian navy was significantly involved in defending Tyre. As we talked about, so many nations were bound up in Tyre. If Tyre goes down, their economy is in the toilet, right? All of their exports and imports breaks down. And so Egypt sends out its navy into that fight And so here God's saying, you've already seen me break one of those arms and it's not coming back to help in the fight. And he says, but I'm going to do the same to the ground troops. I'm going to do the same to the other army. Okay, verse uh, 23, I will scatter the Egyptians among the nations and disperse them through the countries and I will strengthen the arms of the king of Babylon. Okay, do you see how God's kind of tipping the scales of the fight here? It's like God is betting on a fight and he says, I bet Babylon's going to win. Okay, and so Judah calls in their second Egypt to try and balance things out. He sneaks into his house at night, breaks both his arms. And then he starts dosing Babylon, right? He says, also, I'm going to strengthen the arms, right? Also, I'm going to, you know, load down Babylon with steroids. This will not be a fair fight because it's not just a fight between nations. God's hand is in it. And so he's going to strengthen the arms of the king of Babylon and put my sword in his hand, but I'll break the arms of Pharaoh and he will groan before him like a man mortally wounded. I will strengthen the arms of the king of Babylon, but the arms of Pharaoh shall fall. Then they shall know that I am the Lord when I put my sword into the hand of the king of Babylon 
and he stretches it out against the land of Egypt, and I will scatter the Egyptians among the nations and disperse them throughout the countries. Then they will know that I am the Lord. All right, so we get another one here in chapter 31. And this one is going to be an extended metaphor, but it's also a history lesson. Okay, and so imagine, imagine that word of Ezekiel's ministry gets to Pharaoh, and he goes, huh, crocodile dragged out of the Nile. We'll see, right? But here, it's almost as if Ezekiel goes, all right, Pharaoh, let's have a heart-to-heart. Do you remember your recent history? Let's talk about the last like the Egyptians. Let's talk about Assyria, the last one that wanted to be a world power, and, side note, the last one that tried to stand up against Babylon. Let's see what happened there. And that's effectively the orientation of this oracle in verse 1. In the 11th year, in the third month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, say to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and to his multitude, whom are you like in your greatness? Behold, Assyria was a cedar in Lebanon. And so he says, when you think of your own greatness, what's the best simile you can grab? What's the best comparison? What's a nation like your nation? And he goes, Assyria was great. He says, if you want to draw a parallel, why don't you consider Assyria? And remember, in Israel's history, Assyria is the one that broke the back of the northern tribes and carried them away. Assyria is the world-ruling kingdom that Babylon replaces, just as Persia replaces Babylon, and then Greece, Persia, and then Rome, Greece, okay? And so there's a line here, and Egypt is aspiring to be the next. Forget about Babylon. We'll see what's going to turn out there, but if there was Assyria at the helm, now there's a power vacuum, right? The heavyweight has been displaced, and I have my plans for the title. And so he says, consider Assyrian, uh, Assyria, and he says it's like a cedar in Lebanon, okay? Anytime you read about Lebanon in the Bible, you should think of the redwood forest here on the west coast. When we think of big trees, that's what we think of, right? In Israel, you think of the forest of Lebanon. And so he says Assyria was like one of the big trees, one of the strong ones from Lebanon, with beautiful branches and forest shade and a towering height, its top in the clouds, Verse 4, the water nourished it, the deep made it grow tall, making its rivers flow around the place of its planting, seeding forth its streams to all the trees of the field. So it's huge and it's well watered. Verse 5, it towered high above all the trees of the field. Its boughs grew large and its branches long from abundant water in its shoots. So it branches out over the rest of the forest. It's that big. And it soaks up all the water from deep in the reservoirs of the earth. And then verse 6, All the birds of the heavens made their nest in its boughs. Under its branches, all the beasts of the field gave birth to their young. Under its shadow lived all great nations. Right? It was the nation of nations. It was the center of empire. It conquered and expanded its kingdoms and its territories. Verse 7, it was beautiful in its greatness, in the length of its branches, for its roots went down to abundant waters. The cedars in the garden of God could not rival it, nor the fir trees equal its boughs, neither were the plane trees like its branches. No tree in the garden of God was its equal in beauty. And so it says, if you could even imagine the garden of Eden, there was never a tree like Assyria. 
Now, reading something like that from Ezekiel should make us a little suspicious. We should be expecting the but, right? We should expect him. He's almost painting with too big of a brush. Assyria was a big deal. But the biggest deal of all all time, the greatest nation the world had ever seen, like, you know, the original trees, the ones that all other trees are stemming from and patterned by, the garden, right? And then notice verse 9, I made it beautiful in the mass of its branches. All the trees of Eden envied it that were in the garden of God. God says, I had a hand in that. Assyria didn't just rise up off my radar. I was involved. I gave them the, uh, the giftings or the strength or even the responsibility of this role. And so remember what we're doing here. He's talking to Pharaoh and he's saying, all right, Egypt, you aspire to be great. Assyria was great. The greatest of the great. But Pharaoh knows where this is going. Because where's Assyria now? Gone. Okay. You know, we have that saying, it's so, so trite and so often repeated and none of us actually believe it. But we say that those who fail to learn from history are bound to repeat it. And that is the message that he's trying to lay out here. The sensibility of empire says, yes, but this time it's different. But yes, this time it's better living through chemistry. But yes, this time we have the Ubermensch. But yes, this time it is the glory of Rome. It's the Pax Romana. We've done this over and over and over again. And at every point, somebody gets to a place where they look around at this empire and they say, this is eternal. This is forever. This is the last. This is the final. This is the very kingdom of God. And that's the danger that Egyptians, uh, Egypt is in. They're just the next candidate. And Ezekiel says, don't you know Assyria felt the same way? Don't you realize that the boasting you do is just you trying to fill the shoes of the one who came before you? Don't you expect if you're driving the road that Assyria drove that you're going to drive off the same cliff at the end of it? And so he continues, verse 10, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because it towered high, and set its top among the clouds, and its heart was proud of its height, I will give it into the hands of the mighty one of the nations. He shall surely deal with it as wickedness deserves. I have cast it out. Foreigners, the most ruthless of nations, have cut it down and left it. On the mountains and in all the valleys, its branches have fallen, and its boughs have been broken. In the ravines of the land, and all the peoples of the earth have gone away from its shadow and left it. On its fallen trunk dwell all the birds of the heaven, and on its branches are the beasts of the field. You know, we may admire the kingdom of Rome, but we'd never be tempted to trust in it. It's gone. Right? In the same way, it says, you may aspire to be like Assyria, but where is Assyria now? It's dismantled. It's removed. It's gone. In fact, he continues here, it's not just as if the tree fell over, but notice here at the end of it, verse 14, all this is in order that no trees by the water may grow to towering height or set their tops among the clouds, and that no uh, trees that drink the water may reach up to them in height, for they're all given over to death. There's a warning here. It says, if you don't want to have the fate of Assyria, don't be like them. 
Don't make the same mistake. Again, God said he had a hand. He gave a responsibility to the powers that be. All authority, the Bible claims, stems from God. God will hold all of it accountable, but all of it has this propensity to make those in power, power crazy and power hungry. And so here he, he gives this warning and he says, every time an empire goes down, it's a warning to all who see it of the danger of letting power go to your head, of the foolishness of trusting yourself in the, uh, you know, in the power of man. In fact, notice he says at the end here, they're given over to death, to the world below among the children of man with those who go down to the pit. And we'll come back to this imagery here, but it's not just a tree laying on the earth, is it? It's gone full-on subterranean here. It's to the, the, the place of the dead, the underworld, what the Bible calls Sheol. Okay? And, and the underworld in the Old Testament that the prophets evoke here in its imagery, it's not heavenly. And it's not meant to be. It's a place where things are less real. Whereas C.S. Lewis always points out, heaven is a place where things are more real. Okay? So here things are just shadows and shades. They're just memories and absence. Okay? And so it serves as a perfect imagery for what happens to Assyria again. Because again, you may admire Assyria, but if you know the end of the story, you would never trust in them. You would never praise them. You would never turn to them for strength. They're dead. They lay in the ground. We'll come back to Sheol in the next chapter, so let's keep moving. Verse 15. Thus says the Lord God, On the day the cedar went down to Sheol, I caused mourning. I closed the deep over it and restrained its rivers, and many waters were stopped. I clothed Lebanon in gloom for it, and all the trees of the field fainted because of it. I made the nations quake at the sound of its fall when I cast it down to Sheol with all those who go down to the pit. The idea here is that the whole world watching sees this and responds. It's hard for me to envision a modern day comparison unless we just point to America, okay? What if tomorrow America was just gone? Think of the news in England, in China, in Thailand, in Nairobi, right? It would be almost surreal that's what it was like when Assyria went down. Okay. That's what it was like when Rome dissolved after a thousand years. He says in the trees, uh, verse 16, I made the nations quake at the sound of its fall when I cast it down to Sheol with those who go down to the pit. And all the trees of Eden, the choice and the best of Lebanon, all that drink water were comforted in the world below. In other words, all the nations that had already died out went, oh, you too? Welcome. Right? They're comforted in the fact that they're no longer alone in the foolishness of their ambition or in their failure. Verse 17, they also went down to Sheol with it, to those who were slain by the sword, yes, those who were its arm, who lived under the shadow among the nations. Whom are you thus like in glory and in greatness among the trees of Eden? Now it finally turns to Egypt, and it uses the same language, right? Okay, fine, you're Assyria. You're the new guy in ta uh, town. You know, you're you're the, um, the dark horse that everybody's betting on. You know where this is going. 
He continues here. He says, you shall be brought down with the trees of Eden to the world below. You shall lie among the, un- among the uncircumcised with those that are slain by the sword. This is Pharaoh and all his multitude, declares the Lord God. And so he basically says here, chart the trajectory. Because effectively, what's happened is these nations, in their wickedness, in their hubris and their self-exaltation, in the way that they trample other people and the way that they decide that only their will wins and shapes all of history around their own desires, eventually in doing so, they challenge God. And that's a fight no nation has ever won. What's interesting, though, is this image here of a tree growing so big that all the nations are beneath it, so that all the birds nest in its branches, so that all the animals find safety under its shade. It seems to be a guaranteed part of human desire because it is truly part of God's design. In fact, when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, he uses this same image, a coming tree, where the birds will nest in its branches and its shade will cover all the nations of the earth. But there's two differences. One of them is, that is the final kingdom. It's the one where Christ is on the throne, the one where Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords reigns, and he does so with righteousness and justice and true peace, not just peace for those at the top, but peace for all will reign. But the second thing that I find really interesting in contrast between these kingdoms, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Greece, Rome, and the kingdom of God in Jesus' parable is he says, the kingdom of God is like a little mustard seed, the smallest of all seeds, just an herb. He says it's out of that that the kingdom is going to grow, not out of the trees of Lebanon, not out of the visibly strong And this is why Jesus in his Beatitudes says outlandish things about his followers. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. They're the meek of the mustard seed. Comes from a little place. It looks like weakness. It looks like death. It looks like crucifixion. It looks like defeat. But it is really the beginning of the one kingdom that will be final and total. But it starts differently. And and this is the most profound thing. Pride is a tremendously human feeling. One that we've all felt. A temptation that we all deal with. Augustine referred to pride as being one of the root sins. A sin that all other sins grow out of. Okay. But God isn't proud. Which is super odd. Because if there was anyone in the universe who had a right to be proud... It's God, the one with all power, with all glory, and these types of things. But God manifests over and over again his tremendous humility. As C.S. Lewis says, he regularly stoops to conquer. And nowhere is that expressed more than in the life and crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. As God takes on flesh as he dies in the place of his enemies and on their behalf, as he surrenders fully and completely to evil without giving up any of his sovereignty. Complete and utter humility, and that's why we can trust God's kingdom. 
You see, there's a tendency today to be reluctant about power and authority, to see it at, at best as a necessary evil. But the reason is because whenever we put ourselves in power, whenever the power that be utilize their power, it becomes oppressive. And, you know, it has this madness to it, like we see here with Assyria and Egypt. But the king of the kingdom of God is humble and lowly and self-giving and love. Let's finish here in chapter 32. In the twelfth year, in the twelfth month, on the first day of the month, again, just a little side note, now in the chronology, we are during the siege, okay? So Egypt has already tried to deliver Babylon, or Judah from Babylon and failed. Now the final 18-month siege is taking place. We're in the final days of Judah. And this is the message that we get. The word of the Lord came to me, verse 2, Son of man, raise a lamentation over Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and say to him, You consider yourself a lion of the nations, but you're like a dragon in the seas. You burst forth in your rivers, you trouble the waters with your feet, and you foul the rivers. <clears throat> Thus says the Lord God, I will throw my net over you with a host of many people, and they will haul you up in my dragnet. And I will cast you on the ground, on the open field I will fling you, and I will cause all the birds of heaven to settle on you, and they will, I will gorge the beasts of the whole earth with you. I'll strew your flesh upon the mountains and fill the valley with your carcasses. To a degree, this is where we began in the first oracle. Okay, we're coming full circle, and we get the same idea of the captured crocodile, and then his carcass in the wilderness, but now it's expanded upon. The detail is fuller. Okay. Verse 7, when I blot you out, I will cover the heavens and make the stars dark. I'll cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon shall not give its light. All the bright lights of heaven will I make dark over you and put darkness on your land, declares the Lord. I will trouble the hearts of many peoples when I bring your destruction among the nations into the countries that you have not known. I'll make many peoples appalled at you, and the hair of their kings shall bristle with horror because of you when I brandish my sword before them. Remember in the last chapter, Ezekiel said, take Assyria as a warning. Here he says, Egypt, you're the next warning. He continues here, he says, when I brandish my sword before them, they shall tremble every moment, every one for his own life on the day of your downfall. If that happened to Egypt, what will happen to us? Verse 11, for thus says the Lord God, the sword of the king of Babylon shall come upon you. I will cause your multitude to fall by the sword of mighty ones, all of them the most ruthless of nations. They shall bring to ruin the pride of Egypt, and all its multitude shall perish. I'll destroy all its beasts from beside many waters, and no foot of man shall trouble them anymore, nor shall the hoof of beasts trouble them. Then I will make their waters clear, and cause their river to run like oil, declares the Lord God. They, this is speaking in an ancient time, but just parallel. Imagine how clean the Hudson would be if New York was gone. It's the same idea here when he says that the Nile's going to run like oil, completely unpolluted by the presence of humans is the idea here. Okay. Um, verse 15, when I make the land of Egypt desolate and when the land is desolate of all that fills it, when I strike down all who dwell in it, then they will know that I am the Lord. This is a lamentation that shall be chanted. 
The daughters of the nation shall chant it over Egypt, and over all her multitude shall they chant it, declares the Lord God. In the twelfth year, in the twelfth month, on the fifteenth day of the month. Okay, that's just two weeks after the chapter began. Uh, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, wail over the multitude of Egypt and send them down her and the daughters of the majestic nations to the world below, to those who have gone down to the pit. Do you see how this chapter is a conclusion of everything we've read before? It's grabbing all the threads. Okay, and so now we're back in Sheol. And here is the, the wailing. Here is the mourning. Verse 19, whom do you surpass in beauty? Go down and be laid to rest with the uncircumcised. They shall fall amid those who are slain by the sword. Egypt is delivered to the sword. Drag her away and all her multitudes. The mighty chiefs shall speak of them with their helpers out of the midst of Sheol. They have come down. They lie still. The uncircumcised slain by the sword. Verse 22, Assyria is there and all her company. Remember how it talked about Assyria being greeted as she came into the place of dead? Now she's the host watching the door for the next one. And here comes Egypt. Assyria is there and all her company. Its graves are all around of them slain, fallen by the sword, whose graves are set up in the uttermost parts of the pit and her company is all around her grave. All of them slain, fallen by the sword, who spread terror in the land of the living. Elam is there. And all her multitude around her grave, all of them slain, fallen by the sword, who went down, uncircumcised in the world below, who spread their terror in the land of the living, and they bear their shame with those who have gone down to the pit. They've made her a bed among the slain with all her multitude, her graves all around it, all of them uncircumcised, slain by the sword, for the terror of them was spread in the land of the living, and they bear their shame with those who go down to the pit. They are placed among the slain. Meshech Tubal, is there, and all her multitude, her graves all around it, all of them uncircumcised, slain by the sword, for they spread their terror in the land of the living, and they do not lie with the mighty, the fallen among the uncircumcised, who went down to Sheol with their weapons of war, whose swords were laid under their heads, and whose iniquities upon their bone, for the terror of mighty men was in the land of the living. But as for you, you shall be broken and lie among the uncircumcised with those who are slain by the sword." And so it's, it's almost like if you read Dante's Inferno, which is basically, as much as it is a journey, is more like a roster of those who live in hell. And you just get to meet them and find out what they did. And so it's, it's as if he's just introducing you to all of Egypt's new roommates, okay, in Sheol, in the place of the dead. Um, but they're just here to show the inevitability of where this leads. Jesus says something similar. He says, those who live by the sword will die by the sword. The conquerors inevitably, be, inevitably become the conquered. And even Babylon, who is the one who's wielding the sword now, will find themselves in the same place because even though God is using them to judge the last one, they are also the next one. Verse 29, Edom is there, her kings and all her princes, for whom their might are laid with the sword or killed by the sword. They lie with the uncircumcised with those who go down to the pit. The princes of the north are there, all of them, all the Sidonians who have gone down in shame with their slain, for all the terror that they cause by their might, they lie uncircumcised with those who are slain by the sword and bear their shame with those who go down to the pit. When Pharaoh sees them, he will be comforted for all his multitude. 
Pharaoh and all his army slain by the sword, declares the Lord God. Now, why is it that Pharaoh will be comforted here as he meets all of his, you know, gravely roommates? Again, the reason is because he'll realize the inevitability of ending up here. He'll look around the room and go, oh, of course. There's an interesting place in the book of Revelation where all the voices on heaven and earth say together, righteous and true are your judgments, O Lord. In uh, Psalm 51, David's confession psalm, he says, I confess my sins so that you, God, may be judged rightly. Now, nobody's going to stand in front of God as judge. The idea there is that we're all going to go, he made the right call. That decision was just. Okay. That's what happens with Pharaoh here. He recognizes that his, uh, it's, it's as if his whole ambition was a dream. And he wakes up and goes, that was weird, right? He sees things for what it really is. And then finally, verse 32, for I spread terror in the land of the living and he shall be laid to rest among the uncircumcised with those who were slain by the sword. Pharaoh and all his multitude declares the Lord God. So ends the oracles against Egypt. But in finishing here, let me remind you the purpose of these passages. It's not just a warning to Egypt. It's a warning to God's people because there is a tendency for the people of God to look for those in power to protect them, to give them strength, to become uh, uh, their ways and means, even to do God's things, right? Remember the Jews, they can't get it in their head that God is in this war with Babylon, and so they're looking for a way to survive. They're looking for these types of things, but every time God's people, including the church, have turned to those in power, have entrusted themselves to the powers that be uh, and leaned into those things and said, we can do this. We can be God's people by the sword. We can do this. We just need to align ourselves with those in power. Every time we've done that, we've been mistaken. Every time we've done that, we've followed in the footsteps of Judah who couldn't see the writing on the wall and didn't believe the truth that Jesus preached, that it's going to be the mustard seed, that it's going to be the unlikely candidate, that it's going to be the weak and the meek who inherit the earth, and that that's where God is actively working. Let's pray. Father, we thank you tonight for your word. We thank you for the goodness of your kingdom against all the wickedness of all the kingdoms of the earth. We thank you, Lord, that we need not fear their sword, nor be tempted to avail ourselves to their strength, Lord, because we are aligned with you. And we know that even if powers or principalities stand against us, those weapons cannot separate us from your love. And we know that no matter what happens today in the empires and the nations, that one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We know that every act of oppression, every, every move of power that is justified just by strength will one day fall under the just judgment of Jesus. Every wrong set right. And so I pray, Lord, that you'd protect us from the mistake of thinking that the ends justify the means, 
of freaking out and availing ourselves to the powers that be instead of entrusting ourselves to the one that was and is and will always be. Wherever Egypt exists in our life, Lord, let us not make the mistake of trusting in a broken reed, but instead entrust ourselves to the one who is faithful and true. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.